0: Today we have a conversation with Mark Crutcher, a man who mentored the likes of pro-life leaders Lila Rose and David Delighton, and who also spearheaded undercover investigations into the abortion industry. We're going to be talking about some of the shocking findings and things that they uncovered from the abortion industry with Mark today, and this is an episode you're going to want to listen to because... Cam, my wonderful co-host, who you'll meet in just a moment, said this is the best and most interesting conversation that we have had to date. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter, host of the show, and I'm excited about the episode that we have coming up today, the conversation with a leader in the pro-life movement, someone who has been around for 40 years he's been around for a long time he's seen a lot in the movement and has done a lot of great work before we do that my co-host today the guy i'm always with the wonderful mentor of mine with a fantastic beard and beautiful smile and often just amazing commentary on the podcast cam i just want to elevate you uh so much i know you love it cameron cote everyone how are you sir
1: Just pumping those tires. I'm doing well, sir. It is a pleasure to be back with you. And just a quick note before we dive into more about this episode, please do consider checking out our uh, merch store on our website, ProLifeGuys.com, and signing up as a Patreon supporter to help us grow into the new year. You can sponsor um, on behalf of a friend or family member if you want to make that uh, your Christmas gift to them, the impossible person to buy for get a pro-life guys, mug or water bottle or sponsor the show on their behalf, um, to help us save more babies and reach more people. So that's just my quick, quick comment. But this interview with Mark Crutcher, I, I mentioned to Mark off the air before we recorded this, we're obviously recording this introduction after we've uh, recorded this. Um, he is the pro-life hero that I never knew that I had. I have spent so much time learning apologetics from the Scott Klusendorfs and Greg Kokels and and Trent Horns of the World. I've been learning activism outreach from um Joe Scheidler and Greg Cunningham and others. He is the pro-life hero that I never knew that I had. I hope that and I trust that in listening to this interview, it'll be the same for you. But um I am so excited about this interview, Peter.
0: Yeah, as am I. Just one note. Um If you become a Patreon supporter, becoming a patron of the Pro-Life Guys will not only um, help us grow the podcast, but also goes to pro-life outreach, pro-life activism and equipping people around the world uh, to be better pro-life advocates themselves. That's the mission we have here at the podcast, to equip people with the tools that they need to have effective and winsome conversations on abortion, to change minds, to save lives and to work with us. Uh, us being the pro life movement, pro life movement here in Canada and around the world uh, for the transformation of our culture. Our guest today is none other than Mark Crusher, the pro life mentor and hero Kim never knew that he needed, though that he had. He is the president and founder of Life Dynamics, which is best known for their undercover operations, which expose shocking and illegal activities that happen inside the abortion industry. Their success in covert surveillance efforts have led to Life Dynamics being labeled the CIA of the pro-life movement. And I guess Mark then, Cam, would be the director of the CIA of the pro-life movement. Mark is also the author, and we're going to talk about it briefly on the, uh, on the episode of the book, Lime 5, Exploited by Choice, held up by Cam there. A book that gives readers a shocking look into what goes on into the American abortion industry. He's the director of MAFA 21, Black Genocide in 21st Century America a pro-life documentary film produced in 2009 that argues that the modern-day prevalence of abortion among African Americans is rooted in an attempted genocide or the MAFA of Black people. That is something we wanted to talk about on the episode, but Mark has so many things to say that we promised we are going to have him on in future episodes, maybe January, maybe February. We'll have him on again. We'll talk about more of the work that Mark does with Life Dynamics. And uh, and with the books that he's written and the documentaries that he has produced. So, without further ado, here is our conversation with Mark Crutcher. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast today.
2: It is really my pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah, we are. We're looking. We've been looking forward to this conversation for a while to hear your story, some of the work that you've been doing. So, let's dive right into it. Maybe maybe start with us at the very beginning. Could you share? perhaps how you got involved in the movement and why you thought it was important for yourself to be involved in the pro-life movement.
2: Well, I've been involved almost 40 years now, uh, full-time. And um, I just reached a point in my life where I was very successful in my business career and had a really good future there. But I thought uh, life is is about more than making money. God expects more than that from us. And so uh, I'd always been pro-life and I had been involved with writing articles and doing debates and that sort of thing. And I just made a commitment to do pro-life work full time. And what I did was I kind of analyzed the pro-life movement that existed at, the, at that moment and said, where are the holes? What are we not doing or not doing well? And I, I figured that if, if some other group out there was doing something and whatever they were doing and they were doing a good job of it, I wasn't going to step on those toes. I wasn't going to try to reinvent the wheel. And uh, where I began was um, with doing undercover work. I, m- my observation was that the pro-life movement had failed miserably at intelligence gathering. And you don't win wars without an effective intelligence gathering network. And so that's where we started. And we started going undercover, and we still do this to this day. And that has produced a lot of fruit over the years, of course. We, uh, we were the group that uncovered the trafficking and baby body parts. Uh, we were undercover in an abortion mill in Overland Park, Kansas for 31 months and uh, got information out of there about that particular issue. Um, we were the group that uncovered the the uh, uh, fact that the National Abortion Federation and Planned Parenthood are basically operating an illegal nationwide uh, pedophile protection racket, protecting the men that rape children and who are then brought to these abortion clinics to cover up the, the statutory rape and the abortion clinics are making no reports, which they're required by law to do in every state. And I'm sure Canada has similar uh, statutes in place. So we've had a lot of success going undercover. And my view has always been, and I've written this many times, that the information that we're gonna need to defeat the abortion industry is inside the abortion industry. They already know it. We've just got to go in and get it. And um, that's the principle that we we still operate on. But We've done a lot of other things, of course, other than undercover work, but that's the thing we're probably most known for. And I, I find that so interesting. I, I look forward to
1: in in the next little bit here diving into some of these um, investigations that you've done and how they unfolded and the the outcomes that you found from them. But I I I think it's important to talk to the listeners a little bit about this idea of the back end as well. I, I I mentioned off air to you, Mark, a little bit of how the last month prepping for this interview has been a bit of a revelation to me because I've, I've thought so much about the political arm of the pro-life movement trying to make abortion illegal and the pastoral arm trying to make it um, unnecessary and the educational arm trying to make it um, unthinkable. And yet you guys have taken such an incredible approach of basically trying to make it impossible for Americans to get abortions by exposing the super ugly and disgusting reality of what is happening on the back end. And I'm curious about as this vision was kind of developing and as you were having conversations with others, um, as you were launching the organization, how did you see this becoming a bit of a leverage for the Whether it's the legal arm, we see what is happening now in America with with um, Dobbs versus the Jackson Health Clinic. We see what is happening on state levels and whatnot. Talk about the role that making abortion kind of impossible has had in transforming culture.
2: Well, my view was that the pro-life movement, in a sense, had its cart before its horse. We thought we could make abortion uh, unavailable by making it illegal. And my view was that we would never make it unavailable, uh, illegal until we made it unavailable. And so we, we, were, we, we approached it from exactly the opposite position as most pro-life groups did. And um, I think we see that continuing to this day. By the way, in 1992, when I started Life Dynamics, the abortion rate in America was 1.7 million a year. Um, There were 2,126 freestanding abortion clinics in America. They were extremely profitable. These people were making money hand over fist. Like I said, the abortion rate was high. And when you looked at the uh, polls on abortion at that time, there was overwhelming support for the pro-choice side. I saw polls sometimes that were uh, people would 20% of them would say they were pro-life and 74% would say they were pro-choice, things like that. And my thinking was, as long as that continues, you'll never stop abortion when you have when you're doing 1.7 million of them a year. It, it's just it's too much inertia, and so we had to start doing things to attack the abortion industry, the business itself, uh, and bring that abortion rate down. And once we got it down to a certain level, then the abortion industry would have less political power, and we'd be able to start actually making progress in the political arena. But it was just unreasonable to me to think that we could make abortion illegal as long as it was happening 1.7 million times a year. And the abortion industry had this enormous um, bank of money that was coming in. Now today, we've got the abortion rate down to about 600,000 from 1.7 million. And uh, instead of 2,126 freestanding abortion clinics like there were the day that I opened Life Dynamics, there are now just about 500. So we've closed down, when I say we, I don't mean necessarily Life Dynamics, but the pro-life movement. By taking this approach of going after it as a business, um, we've closed down three-fourths of the abortion mills in this country permanently and reduced the abortion rate by about the same percentage. And that has made the abortion industry much, much weaker than what it was back in those days. The other benefit of that is, and the most important benefit of that is when we were killing 5,000 babies a day, which is what we were doing in 92, if you contrast that to today um, with less than 2,000 a day, um, what we're looking at is uh, 3,000 babies a day, a day, that aren't being killed that would have otherwise been killed. So... We're, we're saving babies, but at the same time, we're making the abortion industry weaker. And these, these things are going on like right here in Texas right now with SB8 and then in the Supreme Court with the Mississippi challenge. Um, those things would have never been possible in a million years when the abortion rate was 1.7 million a year. It just wouldn't have been possible.
0: Yeah. Okay. So walk us through... Um, You know, Starting 1992, perhaps a little bit earlier um, to today, the abortion rate's down about 3,000 abortions per day. Uh, As you said, um, Life Dynamics has done the work that you do. You were involved, from what I understand, in Operation Rescue and doing some of the rescues with thousands of other Americans as well. So maybe walk us through, um, how did we get to this point? What were some of the strategies utilized? How sort of boots on the grounds did uh, Life Dynamics do the work that you did um, to really bring the pro-life movement. Um, you know, like you said, it's not just you, there's a a movement, but certainly um, bring the movement to where it is today.
2: Well, one of the things you have to understand, first off, let me correct something you said. Um, I was not part of operation rescue. I I totally supported what they did and I worked with them a lot, but I was not directly connected with L R at all. And I still have a good relationship with them today. Troy Newman is one of my best friends in the entire pro-life movement. He's the head of operation rescue, but, um, we, and and to some degree, we've drifted away from this over the years, and this is one of the things that Life Dynamics intends to address in the coming year. Um, we've kind of become a little bit too corporate in our approach, as opposed to grassroots and, and uh, you know, bottom-up uh, approach. When we were doing the bottom-up approach, we were making significant progress. Um, but we have, over the years, become to rely too heavily on United States Congress or the United States Senate or the Supreme Court or our state legislators. The fact is, we're never going to end abortion in in those environments until we end it in our own communities. And the vast majority of people in the United States, and I suspect this is true in in Canada, um, they don't feel like they can really affect the Supreme Court or they don't feel like they can affect the Congress or the Senate or their state legislature, but they can affect what they're doing in their local communities. And we are now developing a program to go back to the grassroots of the pro life movement and show people how they can focus in on that area. If you stop abortion in your community, your state legislators, your congressmen, your senators will take notice of that. If you turn your community pro life and they will then vote accordingly. We keep on getting these, these um, questions from pro-lifers where they'll say, why is it that we keep putting these people on the Supreme Court that stab us in the back once they get there? Why is it that we elect people to Congress or to our state legislators, legislatures uh, or to the Senate or to the presidency who then do nothing about abortion or who, who change their mind, who, who renege on their commitment to the pro-life movement? And the reason for that is very simple. If you, if you get elected to one of these positions, and I'm sure the same thing is true in Canada in your parliament or whatever, um, you're going to get visited by the pro-abortion side, even if you're pro-life. And they're going to say, look, we understand your, your pro-life sentiments and, and you know, we support your ability to have that position. But here's what you need to understand. Your district is 70% pro-choice. Now, they'll tell them that whether it's true or not. But your district is 60 or 70, 80% percent pro-choice. And if you come up here and advance your religious agenda by outlawing a woman's right to choose, your district will take your job away from you. You will lose your job as as an elected official. And believe me, nothing frightens any elected official more than the prospect of losing their job. So this is a very effective strategy. So then the next time an abortion vote comes up and this person who's always claimed to be pro-life votes against it, and they'll come out and say things like, well, I'm still just as pro-life as I ever was on a personal level, but I've come to believe I don't have the right to inflect my views on, on my constituents. And that's, that's happened to us a million times over the years. If the time comes that we, as the pro-life movement, have sold the pro-life position well enough in their district that they know that that's not true when the pro boards come to tell them that, or when we can go to them, and say, look, this thing just happened. This event just happened in your community that shows how pro-life that community is, uh, or this poll was just taken, and your your district is seventy percent pro-life. Then they're not going to be afraid to vote for pro-life measures. And so we've the pro-life movement has got to go back to its grassroots and to its origins and fight this battle on a local level. Everybody fight it on the local level. And, you know, there's an old saying, um, all politics is local, uh, and there's no place on earth where that's more true than in the pro-life movement. Um, So that's one of the things, that is the thing that that Life Dynamics is going to be focusing on this next year. We're developing a new website and some new materials, and we've got one project that I'm really excited about that we're not going to reveal at this point, but um, to help people to equip them to fight abortion in their community and turn their community pro life and not have to worry about the state legislature and don't worry about the Congress and the Senate and the and the Supreme Court. I am super
1: excited to hear about this, this project as it comes out. I, I think of I, I've heard it said over and over again by political groups here in Canada that elections are won and lost not in the in the ballot box, but in between election cycles. Whether mm-hmm. or not you're getting boots on the ground in between the elections with your nominations, with your gathering information, we've been piloting a project here in, in Calgary where we're trying to do door knocking door by door where those super annoying pro-lifers that are um, knocking on your door and asking about abortion, trying to change your mind and collecting data on this so that when pro-life action comes up, up. We've got this massive list, and we can go into a community that is, yeah, maybe maybe it is starting out at 60% pro abortion or 70% pro abortion. And we spend four years there, change people's minds to get them to the 50-50, 60% pro-life, whatever it is. And then we can go back to that politician and say, hey, we've changed this, this writing. And here's the names and numbers of all the places that you need to know. Here's the data backing up this. Elections are going to change, not based on what happens in the two weeks leading up to an election, but what happens in the four years between them, I'm sure. Um, I, I'd love to go back, though, Mark, a little bit with this this very well-oiled machine right now that we see at Life, life Dynamics. Anyone who isn't familiar with Life, uh, life Dynamics, go to their website. Uh, we'll have that in the show notes. We'll talk a lot about the different websites that you've got on the go. I want to hear about the first undercover Campaign that you did. I I know that now. I'm sure it's it's much smoother. I, I look at what we're doing at Pro Life Guys or even at CCBR, and how our operations have become far more efficient and far more streamlined. Now, I'm I'm curious. What was your first undercover operation as as an organization? How did that kind of unfold? What was the idea process going into it, and what were kind of the results that you saw come
2: out of it? Well. Understand this: one of the things that uh, one of our strategies was, and I think it's been proven to be very effective, was um, when when you have an um, when an abortion takes place, there's a supply side and there's a demand side. The demand side is obviously the woman. The supply side is the abortionist. If you take either one of them out of the picture, the abortion doesn't happen and the baby survives. The pro-life movement had traditionally gone after the demand side we decided to go after the supply side against the abortion industry itself. And one of the things we wanted to do was to make it harder for the abortion industry to recruit doctors um, to get into the abortion provision pool. And we had discovered that there were pro-abortion groups in the United States that had full-time employees that did nothing but recruit doctors to go to work in abortion clinics. When they started losing um, physicians to work in these places, They started closing down. Um, Not long ago, the oldest abortion clinic in the United States closed in in Washington state, Um, not because they didn't have customers, but because they didn't have abortionists. They couldn't get anybody to work there. And our view was that if we would heighten the stigma of abortion within the medical community alone, forget the general public, just go after the medical community, that we could reduce the numbers of people that would be willing to go to work in it. And one of the things we did, we did a project, uh, the very first major project that we did was one called Project Choice. And what we did was, uh, first off, we knew that the abortion industry was not going to go out and tell the medical community how, how horrible it was to spend your life as an abortionist. They wanted people to get into it and not find that out until it was too late for them to get out. So what we did was we set up this organization called Project Choice, a pro-abortion organization. We had separate, uh, there weren't websites at that time, but we had a separate phone line. We had, it was just a, a totally separate company, but we ran it. And the, one of the, the first thing that we did under Project Choice was we uh, set out to do a nationwide uh, interview with all the, the, the country's abortionists. And just ask them, what is your life like? You know, uh, w- how does the stigma affect you? And uh, if you had it to do over again, would you do it again? And what kind of, what kind of response do you get from other doctors? And uh, have you lost hospital privileges? Or have you been thrown out of a clinic uh, because you do abortions? And we had about a, I think it was about a 40-page questionnaire that we sent to uh, every abortion clinic in the United States, every abortionist in the United States. And um, I can say I can tell now because it's pretty well known, we sent this anonymously and people were to respond to this and we sent them self-addressed envelope and thanked them and we're pro-choice and we're trying to fight for your rights and we need this information so we can pass laws that will protect you and all this. So we sent them this um, interview and we told them it was anonymous. But we had coded each response um, with a with invisible ink that only shows up when you put infrared light to it, so that when they came back, we knew uh, who who had responded, and we could use that information. But um, we were getting a fairly low response rate; we were only getting about ten percent. So we lured some existing pro-choice groups. Um, especially the National, uh, National Coalition of Abortion Providers, NCAP, at that time, run by a guy named Ron Fitzsimmons. We befriended him and convinced him that this was very important information, that we really needed this, and we had a big funder that was going to help us get all these laws passed to protect the abortion industry. And um, we got him on board, and we got a couple of others on board, and we had them. We gave them a list of all the people that we had sent these things to, and their phone numbers, and asked them to start making phone calls and get them to respond. Um, normally, polls like this, you're lucky to get fifteen to twenty percent response, which is about what we were getting. Um, because we got the help of these other pro pro abortion groups, uh, we got over eighty percent response to our questionnaire, and it provided. A lot of really valuable information, some of which we still use to this day. And this was, you know, back in 92 or 93. Um, then, then the other thing that happened was that uh, when you do undercover work, you always know you'll you'll eventually be be uncovered. So when we thought we had gotten all we were going to get out of the project choice survey, we exposed ourselves. We were never caught. We brought it out, we outed ourselves through a pro-abort who worked at a newspaper in Kansas. And we dropped information to her that Project Choice was actually life dynamics and um, that they were going to do all kinds of horrible things with this information. And um, she wrote this incredible hit piece on us. We couldn't have bought that kind of advertising for a billion dollars. We weren't trying to make people like us. We were trying to make people not want to be abortionists. And everything that this survey said that these people about their lifestyle said, this is not something you want to do. Uh, it wound up on Nightline one night. Um, and we had done some other things that got a lot of attention like that. But the you ask about the very first one. The first one was this Project Choice Survey. And the interesting thing is that if you go out and uh, talk to pro-aborts, about the pro-life or various pro-life organizations. They'll have opinions about each one of them. And when you talk to them about us, uh, you can see their jaws clench. And the very first thing they'll mention is that project choice survey where they lied and told us that this was anonymous and we don't know where this information went. And they had all this information on us and we lost abortion providers over people saying, if this is the way the pro-lifers are going to play the game, we're not interested. We're out of here. And, um, so that was the very first one that we did and and it really spurred us on to do some of the other things that we've done over the years That is so cool mark and and i that that
1: dovetails obviously so i've I've got a copy and we'll talk about your book lime five in in a moment here and and i there's similar um threads in there in chapter Five where you talk about the vacant souls and responses that abortion providers have offered not only in anonymous polls like this but even in in very um High-profile newspapers and and articles and whatnot. Before we dive into the next kind of serious idea, um, undercover one that you did, I, I'd love to to get your kind of explanation, thought process, and some of the outcomes from one that I find incredibly cathartic. And and it's your bottom feeders um, project that you did, developing a bit of a joke comic series that was sent out to abortion providers. And I, I'm sure that this was a similar kind of time range around this anonymous survey. Could you tell us a little bit about Bottom Feeders, the, the rationale of what went into that and some of the outcomes and and possible, possibly as well, in, in light of all of the darkness that you guys have, have uncovered, do you guys find this a little bit cathartic to be able to develop all of these jokes regarding abortion
2: providers? Tell us a little bit about Bottom Feeders. What we wanted to do, again, this was a, a project and it did come out about the same time as Project Choice, a little bit later, but uh, roughly, roughly the same time. It's another effort to dis- discourage practitioners, doctors from going into the practice of abortion. And what we did is we didn't actually write any of those jokes. We took jokes that were directed at uh, lawyers. Were, most of them are lawyer jokes or dumb blonde jokes or... There's all kinds of groups that are attacked. And we just took jokes that were directed at them and changed them over to abortionist jokes. And what we were doing at at that time, there was a big push in medical schools to recruit uh, med students to um, get into the abortion provision pool after they got out of med school. Um, So what we did is we bought a mailing list of every medical student School student in the country, there were sixty six thousand of them at the time. We bought thirty three thousand. We bought one half of all the medical students in the country, and we had this joke book created. It's just a little comic book, basically, in which it was illustrated, and it was it was pretty pretty rough in some places, and. Um, we sent one to one half of all the medical students in the United States, thirty-three thousand, and we only sent to half of them because we wanted that half to be telling the jokes to the other half. So there was a strategy involved in why we didn't send them to every student. But um, this thing went absolutely ballistic when the, when this thing hit. The pro aborts just lost it over this because they understood that if we could make, if we could reinforce the idea that people who do abortions are the bottom feeders, if you will, of the medical community, then fewer people would want to do it. Nobody wants to go into something where they're disrespected and laughed at and the butt of of pretty crude jokes and uh, have this kind of image. And especially in the medical community, nobody wants that. It's the most image conscious community you'll ever see. So they don't want to be a part of that. So that was our thinking. And what's interesting was, I think one of the one of the greatest things that happened in that, um, Ted Koppel did three shows, three consecutive nights on our bottom feeder mailing, and what they did is they went out to all these medical schools, and they assembled panels of these students that had gotten the bottom feeder joke book, and they told some of them and you know, made a big deal out of how crude they were and nasty they were, which they never said that when they were about lawyers. It's only about abortionists that you make these, these that you have these problems. But anyway, um, in one of the panels that they did, one, one of the three nights that they did this, and of course we couldn't have bought that kind of publicity for a trillion dollars. It was, it was doing exactly what we wanted to do. And they were too stupid to recognize that they were actually reinforcing bottom feeder, by doing the shows on bottom feeder because um, doctors are sitting home watching that saying, yeah, these pro-lifers are nuts, but I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be the one they're making jokes about. But anyway, they in one of these panels, um, there was a, a woman, that, a girl that spoke up. She was a, a senior in uh, she was very close to graduating and being going into residency or whatever. And she says, I'm extremely pro-choice. But she said, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do abortions. I, I don't want to be the butt of this, and you know, this sort of thing. And they think they're hurting us. They think, well, Life Dynamics surely wants to have a good, a good reputation out in the public. We didn't care about that. We, had a, we were trying to accomplish a mission. And it's amazing what you can do if you don't care what people think about you. And that was the, that was the attitude that we took. We didn't care if people didn't like us. There were even a lot of people in the pro-life movement that didn't like us. And a lot of them still don't. Um, They want to do the Rebecca of Sunnybrook farm approach and try to think that they're going to get everybody to attend a Sunday school class this weekend. It's not going to happen. Um, So we go after it on a more guttural level, so to speak on a, on a very base level. Um, And, that was that was part of the um, thinking behind bottom feeder, and to this day, they still talk about bottom feeder. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll
1: throw this over to Peter in just a moment. I I had the opportunity to to read through a copy of it on on ultimately the event that got me hooked into the pro life movement the new abortion caravan. One of our supporters in Kelowna that that you actually mentioned in your Lime Five book um, had a couple copies in in one of his boxes in a closet. We were able to flip through it and. And we we laughed ourselves silly um, at this, and and just picturing the response of it. So thank you very very much for, for sharing about that, Peter. I'll throw it over to you because I know that you've got a question about Lime Five here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So both Cam and I have a copy of this Lime Five Exploited by Choice Mark that you had written. Um, could you share maybe what was the idea behind writing it, and maybe talk about some of the findings that you write about in the book? Um, one of the the most one of the ones that really sticks out to me is the idea, uh, just the the rape and sexual assault within the abortion industry, how the abortion industry self-polices themselves and doesn't uh, have to abide by the same standards that other organizations and individuals do. So maybe talk about why you wrote Lime 5 and then um, some of the the specifics about what you wrote in the book.
2: Well, because of the nature of the work that we do at at Life Dynamics, we have a closer, I don't know if the right word's relationship, but we have a closer uh, tie to the abortion lobby and the abortion industry than any other pro-life group in the country. And one of the things that I had identified early on was that there was this feeling, there was this sense, I guess, in the, even to some degree in the pro-life movement, that while they might disagree with abortion, they at least saw the, the abortion industry as part of the medical community. It was like going to your you know, your family doctor or your OBGYN or any other legitimate medical provider. And what we knew from our undercover work was nothing could be further from the truth. These places, the way they're run, you wouldn't take your dog to one of these. If your vet was as nasty and as and as unprofessional as the average abortion clinic, you wouldn't. There's no way. I, t- I love my dogs. I wouldn't take them to, to one of these places. And so we wrote Lime 5. To give people an inside look at the abortion industry, and that so that people can look at this, and I've had a lot of people say to me over the years, "Your book, line five, is what turned me around." Because I thought, "Yeah, it's it's just another medical environment. They're just doctors, and it's nice, clean." And I read line five, and I couldn't believe the, the things that they get away with. It's a very cloistered environment. It's very closed. Um, nobody investigates it. Nobody looks at these people. Uh, they get away with things that no other medical professional could even remotely get away with. Um, and you mentioned the the chapter called "Can Hunt" about uh, women being raped in abortion clinics. When I started line five, I, I did an outline of the of the chapters that I wanted to include, and that in chapter that chapter was not included because even as much as we had infiltrated the abortion industry, we didn't know that was an issue. And the more we started getting, especially people inside the industry and, and women that had had abortions, as we interviewed more and more of them, we started to find out that this issue of women being raped in abortion clinics is, is very common. And by the way, it still is. There are abortionists that we have uh, documents on right now, uh, arrest records, uh, court documents, uh, State Board of Medical Examiner records that have raped patients that are in practice right now as we speak. Uh, we did a follow-up on this just a couple of years ago as part of the, when this Me Too movement came along. And of course, they were not interested in this, uh, in women being raped in abortion clinics. But um, we started looking at this and found out that it was it was pretty common, very common as a matter of fact. And um, so we started looking at the reasons why this would be true. Why would it be more likely for a for a woman to be raped in an abortion clinic than say in a regular GP's office or a gynecologist office or whatever. The first answer to that is you're dealing with a different type of practitioner. You're not dealing with the cream of the crop when you're dealing with people that work in abortion clinics. Um, the second thing is you just have to look at the, at the logistics here. You're dealing with a situation where you have, they're all young females. They have to be of childbearing age or they wouldn't be pregnant and having abortions. So you're dealing with at least relatively young females. Some of them very young. They're in a place where they can't tell any. There's people in their lives that they don't want to know where they are. Um, they so you you got to remember that if if you look at the reasons women have abortions and and the things that they're looking for, a lot of them will say, "I had my abortion to keep uh, my." my life private. It was a privacy thing. I didn't want people to know I was pregnant. If they're a very young girl, they might say, I didn't want my parents to know that I was sexually active. I sure don't want them to know I got pregnant and I sure don't want them to know I had an abortion. So secrecy is a major factor in the abortion industry. Well, these abortionists know that. So if you've got a guy with questionable morals, which is what you have, questionable at best morals. In an abortion clinic, and he's got total control over a young female who can't tell anybody where she is. Just do the math, and so we started seeing more and more examples of this. And we found, like, say, court documents and, and uh, medical examiner reports, and uh, licensing bureaus taking to get away these guys' licenses because they're raping these women. And um, we found out that this was relatively common. And uh, I'll give you a. Uh, A good example of this, one of the people that we were going after was a guy named Brian Finkel in Arizona. And I use him as an example because he was so high profile. He was the darling of the pro-choice community in Arizona. He did 20% of all the abortions in that state over a 20-year period of time. So one out of five abortions for 20 years were done by Brian Finkel. And we had interviewed several of his patients on malpractice cases that we supported and found out that he was raping them. He was sexually assaulting or raping them. We could never get the Maricopa County, uh, which is where Phoenix is, Sheriff's Department or District Attorney's Office to do anything about it because it's always a he said, she said thing. Until um, just a few years ago, uh, a woman came forward and uh, told how she had been sexually assaulted by Finkel when she was having an abortion. Some of his employees, by this point, had had enough. They had been covering up for him and some of them admitted they had been covering up for him. And when this woman came forward, they came forward too and said, yes, we've seen this. We've, we've covered up for him. Uh, we've seen this happening for years. When this got into the, into the paper, because the police, I mean, the the district attorney's office at that time had no choice, but to file these charges because they had witnesses now against, against Finkel. When that got into the paper, Within, a, within less than two weeks, 106 more women came forward and said that they had been raped or sexually assaulted by Finkel when they were having their abortions with him. We worked, because we had a lot of information on this subject, we worked with the Phoenix Police Department and the Maricopa County District Attorney's Office. And I had somebody from the sex crimes unit there tell me that they had 106 complaints um, and they actually filed 94 of them. But they had 106 complaints. And this woman told me, she said, we think that if the national statistics hold up that the vast majority of women who are raped or sexually assaulted never reported that he has raped or sexually assaulted somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 women uh, during his 20 years in business. Um, Finkel went to trial. He pled not guilty. They filed on him on 94. He actually went to trial on... 36 of them they held out some of them to refile in case that they lost on the first group um, he got 34 and a half years he's still in prison to this day and um, he is kind of the poster child for these abortionists that rape their patients but he's not the only one there's a bunch of them out there and like I said we we did a follow-up on this just a couple of years ago and we're able to identify some some guys that um, uh, have either been convicted of this or lost their licenses in one state and then moved to another state uh, over the issue of sexually assaulting patients. Um, And they're still in business to this day. And the people that hire them, whether it's Planned Parenthood or some other independent abortion mill, they know what they've done and they know who they are. They just don't care. And the problem they have is if they have an abortionist and they only have one because there's so few abortionists in the country now. If their abortion clinic is operating with one abortionist and he's raping patients and they fire him, they might not be able to find somebody else. They might have to close because of that and they're not going to do it. So they'll look the other way.
1: Yeah. Just insane. And, and thankfully the, um, Finster that that you mentioned, thankfully, he is in prison. I hope that he never sees the sunlight again. um and and hopefully that happens for many more. And I just before Peter dives into kind of the response from this book and from some of the studies that you published, one thing that i I know that you mentioned in the book, but i I want to get out on the air as well you You chronicle dozens of different cases in each of the chapters in your book, whether you're looking at sexual assault within abortion facilities, whether you're tackling um, Um, minors having abortions or or victims of statutory rape who are being covered up by Planned Parenthood. And yet the quote-unquote bad apples argument that I'm sure many pro-abortion people would have levied against you of this idea of, sure, you found a couple bad apples that are operating within hundreds of pristine clinics. What is your go-to response? How do you show that this isn't just a few bad apples, but like you said, um, something that is rampant throughout the abortion industry?
2: Well, that's, that's all you can say is, look, we documented everything in line five, whether you're talking about the sexual assaults or the women that are killed or the women that are put in nursing homes or whatever the situation was. We fully documented uh, with with secular sites. We never used any pro-life sites to document anything in line five. It was always medical examiner reports or or um, um, newspaper reports or um, police police. Uh, reports, or, uh police complaints, attorney general reports, whatever. Everything was documented uh, in a from a secular site. And the question then becomes: If somebody says, "Well, these are the bad apples," I always ask, "Okay, what are you doing to get rid of the bad apples? What if they? What if this just? You're lying when you say these are just the bad apples. This is the common thing, but." let's say for a moment that you're not lying and these are just the bad apples. What are you doing? Because every time, and I mean this literally every single time legislation is proposed in a state to, to apply the same standards to abortion clinics that apply to everybody else and to abortionists and to investigate them like you would investigate them if they were just OBGYNs or GPs. Every time that legislation is proposed, the abortion industry brings out the big guns to fight it because they know good and well the, the few abortion clinics that are left in this country, the 500 or so out of the 2,200 that existed in 92, out of that 500, 400 of them would be closed if this was investigated. And if they were forced to live by the standards they think everybody else should live by. So um, it's not just the rare occurrence. And let, let me give you a good example of this. We've got uh, a website uh, on violence in the abortion industry because one of the things that's being hidden about this, and we touched on on line five, and then we 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 did another survey about it and another study about it years later, and you can go on our website, "Undercover Violence in the Pro-Life Movement," I mean in the in the abortion industry, and it's about women who are killed, are are beaten because they refuse to have abortions. And this is extremely common. And even the abortion industry has at times come out and admitted that the, that the majority of the women that they see are being forced to have abortions against their will. We did a study in which we didn't look at just women who were beat up. There was too many of them are put in a nursing home. Um, we only looked at women who were killed. And with our small resources here and with the small amount of money that we put into the project, we got, about, we have about a hundred documented cases that are on that website where you can go read about women who were killed because they refused to have abortions. Now, if you start debating with the pro-aborts, at some point you'll come up against the argument, well, how violent the pro-life movement is, you've shot abortionists. Well, first off, it's been years since that's happened. There's been a total since in in all the year, almost 50 years that this battle has been going on, the total number of abortions that have been shot in the United States is eight total. And that's, they're not all abortions. Some of them are abortion clinic employees. Eight is the total number. If that is such an obscenity that it, that it led to congressional hearings, which it did over the issue of pro-life violence. And it led to during the Clinton administration, they put federal marshals at abortion clinics because over a period of 50 years, eight people were killed. Well, what about the hundreds of women that are getting raped every year by these abortion mills? Does no, why do these men, and, and by the way, most of the people that are, have been killed by abortionists, I mean, killed because they're abortionists are men. Every one of them has been, as a matter of fact. Why does their life count, but the lives of these women don't count? I want someone to answer that question for me if if we're going to if we're just going to look at the numbers and you're going to say these are the bad actors why don't you say that about the pro life movement but you don't you'll say that we're all violent and we're all calling for insurrection and overthrow of the abortion industry by force and killing people and all this nonsense nothing could be further from the truth however it is true that there is not a business in America in which a woman is can is likely to go into in which she is more likely to be raped than an abortion clinic. I mean, there's not another business that has this kind of track record. And yet the people who claim to be so pro-woman um, and so outraged by the attacks on choice, so to speak, um, are are really silent about these particular issues.
0: Yeah, this is, this is astounding. And I do want to encourage people to pick up your book, Lime 5, um, to read more about this because they're... There's a lot that you write about um, in terms of the investigations and and the things that you uncovered. Now, you talked about how the abortion industry responds to this. They pull out their big guns, their top lawyers, the big money, to try and fight every sort of claim and make sure that they can continue on uninterrupted day by day without the sort of uh, um, annoying interruption of of pro-lifers knocking at their doors. But I'm wondering, how did the media respond? How did the sort of general population respond Um, because I'm just thinking, you know, we're pro-lifers. If something happened like this in the pro-life movement, a pro-life leader is caught sexually assaulting, um, you know, a third of the interns that go through their organization, that would be national news and remain news for the next 40 years. And it would be the stereotype that would never leave pro-lifers. But how did the media respond? How did the general public respond to some of these findings
2: that you uncovered? Well, you're right. If, if, and I've made this point before, uh, there are three thousand, over three thousand crisis pregnancy centers in America. If there was a, a charge of one male that works at one of those places raping one of the women that go there, it would be evening news for weeks, and there would be congressional investigations. There would be shutdowns of these of these places. They would be um, ostracized in the public. The, the the media would go nuts over it. It happens in abortion clinics, and nobody cares. But you're you're making a mistake here. You're saying this is how the abortion industry responds, but how does the media respond? You're separating them out. They're not separate. That's one entity. Uh, If there's one thing that the pro life movement should have figured out by now is that our enemies are not just the people that work at Planned Parenthood or National Abortion Federation. They're people that work at the New York Times and at the Washington Post and uh, all the various pro abortion magazines. And we're seeing this quite clearly in this battle over the, the SB eight here in Texas, um, the media has gone berserk. I don't know how much y'all have followed that. Um, it's in a different country and even in a different state and even in a different country, but, um, it's a big deal here in the United States. And it's a particularly big deal here in Texas. And, um, the media has gone nuts over this and they have brought out the big guns, uh, in defending the abortion lobby, um, so don't make the mistake of, of treating them as separate entities because they're not. That's one in the same. Yeah. And, and I,
1: I love the way that you put that, that, that arguably, and I've heard it said on many occasions, that the media is just the advertising arm of the abortion industry that the abortion industry is never going to have to pay a dime for advertising efforts because the media is going to do that for them. Um, regardless of whether it's subtle undertones or whether it's explicit support, we see what's happening in Ireland um, and, and especially around the referendums and and expansion of abortion there and how the, the the media is literally in bed with many of the people in the abortion industry, if not metaphorically in bed with them as well. And so I think it makes sense that, that as the the godless left, as I know that you you have have coined on on many occasions. I mean, abortion is is ultimately their sacred calf when it comes to there's nothing that they will do that will undercut abortion in any way. And and yet with that, you would think that they would get smarter and smarter as they went, as they were having these undercover stings. Like it, it it seems reading through the different reports that you have done year over year over year, you think that the 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 abortion movement would at, at least tried to clean up their act. They know that they're under the microscope. They know that people are, are doing stuff. And yet you guys come out with reports constantly and sting operations, David Daleiden and other groups are coming out with these just insane reports about what is happening in the abortion industry. And yet it, from an outsider's perspective, it looks like they're just brazenly saying we can do literally whatever we want and get away with it because we have the protection of the media, because we have the protection of the government is that the way that you see it? And how do we bring an end to that? How do we get it so that they are scared of of it and and not a matter of, I mean, hygienic abortions are not any better than unhygienic abortions because abortion kills an innocent human being. And so it's not whether abortion isn't bad because an abortion clinic does it poorly. Abortion is bad because it kills a human. But where do you see the breaking point for Americans and, and arguably people around the world when it comes to finally throwing the abortion industry under the bus and saying, this is no longer someone that I can defend.
2: Well, we, we are seeing that, that trend start to take hold already. That's what's happening. And I think it's because the pro-life movement has done a good job of heightening the stigma on abortion. Uh, I would argue that the stigma of abortion is greater today than it was 50 years ago, because 50 years ago, it wasn't an issue. Nobody was talking about it. There was not sonogram pictures of unborn children, And so there was a certain level of stigma attached to abortion. But because of all the the things that have gone on over the last 50 years, I think the stigma is higher. And that's where the media comes in. I don't see the media as an advertising organ uh, of the abortion industry as much as I do damage control. That's their role in the abortion industry is damage control. And anytime the abortion industry gets in trouble, uh, these people uh, go into high gear in, in, uh, covering it up and, and doing damage control for them. And again, you're seeing that right now with the stuff here in Texas and with the Mississippi law and so forth. Um, they are doing damage control for the abortion industry. Like I've never seen in my life. They have really ratcheted it up. And I think it's because they know, they know two things. They know they're losing and they're very close to believing that, that, and you can kind of hear some resignation in their voices of the, of the things that I've heard the last couple of days Uh, over the Supreme Court uh, questioning uh, regarding the Mississippi case. Um, Some of them, I think, have have resigned themselves to the fact that it's not going to go their way. And um, so uh, now one of the things I think that's interesting, I really haven't – we haven't done a study on this or report on it, but just have some anecdotal um, evidence that this may be a case – Let's just say that the U.S. Supreme Court came out with a ruling that the unborn child was a person. They don't send it back to the states, which is what I think is probably they're going to do. But they say the unborn child is a person for purposes of the Constitution. Therefore, no state can make abortion legal. And so effectively, once this goes into, into practice, uh, the abortion issue is over here in, in the United States. The can, Canada and Mexico are going to set up cottage industries and abortion. And I would not be a bit surprised if you could do, and and this is one of the places I would, if I were going to study this, that I would start. Look at land that's owned near the American uh, border in Canada and in Mexico. See who owns that land and see if somebody like, uh, George Soros or Ted Turner hasn't bought up patches of land there because one of the things that's interesting, uh, you know, Canada had legalized abortion uh, years ago, but Mexico had not. And I had a woman call me uh, one time that had doing, done some Spanish translations for us on some of our materials. And she said that she was she lived in Mexico City. And she says, it's real interesting. We all of a sudden have this big push in Mexico to legalize abortion. This was four or five years ago that she called me. And now they have. Some of these places in Mexico have legalized abortion. And she says, when I go into the legislature, what's really interesting is I walk down the halls or I go to these meetings or I go to the hearings and they're dominated by people from the United States. You've got all these tasseled loafer, two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollar an hour lawyers, as she called them, that are down here working with the pro-aborts in Mexico to make abortion illegal in Mexico. She says, why do they care if abortion is legal in Mexico or not? And I said, that's their fallback position. They're going to if if abortion, they're looking at the possibility that they will lose abortion in America and they're wanting to use Mexico and Canada as fallback positions. And. That's, I think, a very real possibility that that could happen, and the Mexican um, legislatures and the parliament in Kansas—I mean, in Kansas, parliament in Canada—need to decide whether you want to become the abortion mecca of the world. Is that really the, the reputation and the and the image that you want to project for Canada, for example, in your case? That oh, if you can't get a, if you can't kill your baby in. in uh, um, America, just extradite them to Canada, and we'll kill them up here for you. Is that really what you want to do? And and I think you ought to think hard about that.
0: Yeah, the sad thing is, and we've talked about it on the program before, Mark, is that we are kind of becoming um, sort of a central abortion player in the world. We export hundreds of millions of dollars to countries um, with strings of tide for reproductive health. Um, you know, when, when the United States, uh, certainly under Donald Trump, the president, Donald Trump, um, limited funding overseas, we made sure that the funding still happened, still happened, and still came, and that from Canadian tax dollars. And so, sadly, we are becoming that, um, which is uh, which is a terrible thing. I do wonder, though, Mark, as we slowly start to wrap this up, one of the things we also like to do on the podcast is give people the tools that they need and the mindset that's necessary to be effective in the fight against abortion, whether that's in Canada, the United States, or elsewhere around the world. So I'm wondering. You've been in the movement for 40 years. You've seen a lot take place. You you were in the movement when there were roughly 5,000 abortions happening in the United States. That number's gone way down. You've seen the work of effective organizations like Life Dynamics, which you're a part of, and you've seen work of ineffective organizations as well. So I'm wondering, um, from your vantage point, from your from your perspective, where does the pro-life movement go from here? What sort of message? do you have for pro-lifers today, especially someone like me? I've been in the movement for six or seven years now. There are people who are joining every single year um, for the very first time. So what sort of message do you have for where the movement should be going?
2: Well, it goes back to what I said earlier. We have to return to our roots. We have lost our way. You have these pro-life groups out here now that are having galas. They're they're treating this like they had one in, in D.C. not long ago, and a friend of mine, went just to see what it was like. He said, it looked like the Academy Awards and you had cars pulling up out in front and red carpets and people getting out and walking in. Um, This is not time for a victory lap. Um, We haven't won. You know, Churchill said something in World War II about something that happened in in the war. He said, uh, don't suppose that this is the beginning of the end. It may be the end of the beginning, but it's not the beginning of the end. That's where we are. And This is not the time to to let up. It's the time to go for the kill. You know, if you're if you're a boxer and you hit your opponent and his knees buckle, you don't back off. That's when you move in. And that's we've got the abortion industry's knees buckling right now. We need to move in. And when I said that we're going to Life Dynamics is going to focus in this year on getting us back to our roots and telling people to to worry about abortion in their local community. Don't be worrying about it in. D.C. or wherever. In your case, don't be worry, worrying about it in, in Parliament. Um, worry about it where you live. But one of the things we've got to do, I don't know if you've ever, you said you, you're you interested in apologetics. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not. But when you talk about pro-life apologetics, it's always, here's how you respond when the pro-aborts say X. Here's what you should say. Here's the proper response. That's fine. And we need to do that. And I And I have written books about that. But what's more important is that we turn this around and we go on the attack and we don't just sit back and wait for them to attack us. And then we have this perfect answer for it. And then we just sit back and wait for the next attack to come. We need to turn around and go on the assault and make them answer some questions. And that's part of what we're doing right now. We're developing what we call questions that kill. I want to hear you hold, hold the abortion industry feet to the fire on this issue. Ask them this question. And make them answer it. And, you know, they've been given a free ride for the last 50 years. We've never really done that. But that's one of the main thrusts of this new uh, approach that we're going to be taking is that we're going to go on the attack. This is the time our our enemy's knees have bu- are buckling. We need to go for the knockout punch. And that does not come from playing defense. It comes from being on the attack. Read George, George Patton read about George Patton and the things that he said during World War II. And that will tell you what the the theme that the pro-life movement needs to follow.
0: Yeah. One of the things that came to mind, Mark, was, uh, I think it was a quote by King Ahab um, in the Old Testament. I think it was him. Uh, someone can fact check me if it's not. But the the, the old saying, uh, let not he who puts his armor on rejoice um, as he who takes it off or, or you know, um, sort of, have this excitement as he who takes his armor off and i i think about the galas and i think you know we have some of those things here in canada as well and i'm not going to knock the the march for life i think there's tremendous value in the march for life uh especially if it brings people into the movement who are willing to join the movement full-time or even on a part-time basis but really for the long haul of seeing abortion ended in their communities and their neighborhoods but i remember a time when there was a rally in ottawa Uh, which is our capital where the March for life was. And everyone was cheering at the speaker and our colleague, our former colleague, Stephanie Gray stood up and said uh, something along the lines of this is no time to rejoice. This is a funeral. Um, And that's, that's really an important perspective that we need to have as the pro-life movement that yes, there's, there are wins in, in many places, there are losses we could say in many places as well, depending on what nation we're talking about, but the, the message is we're still in the midst of a battle. And so the time for rejoicing and, uh, you know, and, and and sort of hanging our har- our armor up and just waiting for the next attack. Um, that time is not now. Cam, I know you had one more thought as well before you. We wanted to wrap this up, so take it away, sir.
1: Just, uh, I I was just going to, we are just scratching the surface for those who are tuning in. uh, Mark, we're going to have you back on the program for at least another episode. We haven't even touched on MAFA 21. We haven't touched on Life Talks and Unity in the Pro-Life Movement or any of these other incredible things that you have spearheaded. But I'm curious about if somebody wanted to um, really deepen their their commitment to the pro-life cause we peter you mentioned we have we have interns that come on and and they join us for a summer and they have this great community and and people who attend march for lives and and other events and they say like this is wonderful this is a great community this was a great experience um have i done enough i I feel like i've checked off that pro-life box and i can move on with my life and whatnot um as, as somebody who has been tirelessly dedicated to the pro-life cause what message do you have to those who are are contemplating where that um, line in the sand is for them that that is this a matter of when is enough enough or is this a matter of how much can I give I, I I will say this and and I've said this on the podcast before one of the lines that that drives me bonkers is this idea of We're not called to do great things. We're called to do little things with great love. That may be true, but I think that we're not called to ask about the greatness or smallness of what it is that has been laid before us. Do what the good Lord has called you to do. Do what is necessary. What words of empowerment or or challenge would you offer? Because I'm sure that in, in your time spent dedicated to this cause, you have seen lots of people come in the door and you've seen lots of people go out the door. What do you say to them to instill in them a, a necessary commitment to, to stick around for the long haul that we are not um, on, on the downhill at all. But even if, if times are tough, we need to stick through this. I, I know that's a very convoluted question, but, but what do you say to make sure that people anchor themselves in this movement and don't ask the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? I guess.
2: Well, I think the, one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the features of human nature is It's very difficult for people to uh, get too excited about a battle if their perception is that they can't win it. And very often I see people come into the pro-life movement who are kind of on fire. They have fire in their belly and they're ready to go. But they get hooked up with a pro-life group who seems to be willing to just fight a good fight. They're not here to win. Um, And uh, so they burn out quickly. Quickly, you know, and their attitude becomes: I'm not going to either financially support or um, get too involved with the group uh, in perpetuity. I'm I'm not interested in doing this for the rest of my life. Um, I want to get involved with the group that's here to win. And so, I always tell people, and I don't want it to sound self-serving, like only support Life Dynamics because I'm certainly not saying that. But what I tell everybody is. Um, before you support a group or get involved with a pro-life group, find out what their plan to win is. If they don't have one, move on, go somewhere else. Um, don't give your money. Don't give your time. Don't give your treasure to a pro-life group that has no plan for winning the battle. Um, and you know, you say, well, winning isn't everything. Let me tell you something. If it were you that were about to be ripped to shreds, you'd think winning was everything. I guarantee you. Um, so don't apply that standard to the unborn child. We, we apply all kinds of standards to the unborn child that we would never apply to a three-year-old. And yet we come out here and say that morally a three-year-old and an unborn child are the, are the same and have the same right to life. Well, if they do, then let's act like it. What would we do if they were going into daycare centers and chopping up babies in there? What would we do? And would we support an organization that said, oh, that's horrible, um, but we're going to have this big gala at the end of the year or we're going to have a big fundraiser, fundraising march or whatever at the end of the year. Um, so come join us for that. And by the way, we've been having this same march for the last 40 years. Uh, so you can make a sign for it and you can use that same sign until your grandkids are carrying that same sign. Um, if, you, if you're not here to win, please go home. Um, I would rather be in, in the fight with, with 50 people that are here to win than with 500 or 5,000 that are just here to put up a good fight because they're just in the way. So just support the organizations that if, if you call an organization, say, what's your plan to win? And they can't tell you, they stammer around, they can't send you a book or send you a pamphlet or, you know, a smoke signal or something that tells you what their plan to win is. Uh, move on, find somebody else.
0: Mark, one last thing. You are the president of Life Dynamics and the founder as well. You wrote Lime 5, Exploited by Choice. Where can we find Life Dynamics? What's the best way? What's the best way to find the book?
2: Lifedynamics.com. Um, and we've got a bunch of websites. And, and if, But if you go to lifedynamics.com or prolifeamerica.com, either one of those two websites will take you to all the other websites. And I think you'll, you will find a lot of information there that you might not get at, at other pro-life organizations. Perfect.
0: Thank you, sir. I want to encourage our listeners to do that. We will put the links to uh Life Dynamics in the book in our show notes as well. So you can just scroll down, go to the show notes, click it, and uh and and look at what Life Dynamics and Mark Crutcher is doing. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me and call again sometime. We'll do,
0: sir. We'll do. That is Mark Crutcher, the president and founder of Life Dynamics. Cam, that was a, a phenomenal conversation. There was so much that I learned that I didn't know about the pro-life movement. These episodes are great because you learn some of the history of the pro-life movement that you weren't aware of prior to this. I, you know, we're relatively new in the movement in comparison to the the heroes like Mark Crutcher. I think one of the things that I take away, and I, I was I was going to mention it during the episode, but I forgot with Mark to see what his reaction would be. Um, but it's something that we talk about in some of our strategy presentations. Um, when we're talking to people and trying to show them the importance of using abortion victim photography in our strategy to end abortion. And that is that um, a lot of people, they'll have this sort of pushback on the strategy and say it's a terrible marketing strategy. And, and, and uh, Mark talked about this a little bit as well, that we're not out there for a marketing strategy. We're not there to get people to buy our product or to like us as an organization. We're here for social reform, and that is doing the most effective thing, whether people like us or not but the most effective thing to turn people off of abortion. And so that's something that, man, Mark has done. Um, he, he's he's shown that he's done with the the undercover investigations, the training he's provided, and so many of the other things. What are your, you know, maybe a takeaway or two that you have from this episode, sir? I
1: mean, first of all, we're going to have him back on the show uh, because I, I got about 50 other questions that I would have loved to ask him during this episode. The one thing that really stands out is Mark's laser focus on pre-born babies that uh, the number of people that I've spoken to who have this perception of the debate hasn't changed for 30 years. We're no further ahead. We're no further behind that sort of thing. The, the words that we're saying are still so similar. Has anything changed? Mark's laser focus on pre-born babies as not only his motivation, but the analysis of the effectiveness of his work, as he mentioned throughout the episode, um, the The prevalence of abortion facilities across the nation, that it's been cut to 25% of what it was uh, 30 years ago, that um, the the volume of abortions has decreased by 60% sort of thing. Like, it's absolutely incredible. And so for people to naively think or accept the mainstream media's narrative of nothing is changing and nothing will ever change, Mark has been at the heart of change in America. And I think that this is the critical approach that, that everyone in the pro-life movement needs to be making when it comes to how are we going to actually affect change? What what we're doing? Is it affecting change? He, he had that great statement towards the end there about groups with winning strategies and being more intentional about tracking the outcomes of our projects. If If we're in this and, and I talk to my colleague Kyle about this all the time, or our colleague Kyle, who who runs the show um, out in Manitoba. And, and he has this great line about how pro-life outreach, pro-life anything is going to be anxiety-inducing. Why not get the best out of that? If you're going to get stressed out doing pro-life work anyways, why not do the most effective thing that you could? And... You gauge that by gauging the success of the movement. The success isn't what the mainstream media says about you. It's not how many people are on your mailing list. It's not anything like that. It's how many babies are getting saved. Um, obviously, there are some um, there are some movements that that take a long time, or or plans or projects to come to fruition take a long time, but um, It's something that we actually need to be aware of and be tracking so that year over year, we know that we're getting closer to
0: our goal um, as we go. So that's what stood out to me. Yeah. Key thing, though, uh, is keeping the preborn children at the center of what we do. Not uh, I remember when the Hush documentary came out, as important as it was, people some people were arguing that this was this was the thing. This was the thing that was going to change people's minds on abortion um and that uh, lasted for about 45 minutes but yeah keeping mm-hmm. the focus on pre-born children something mark has done something we try to do on the podcast as well and with our work at ccbr can we have a lot more to talk about in this and, and we have a lot more questions for mark a lot more of a conversation is going to be had with mark that's our promise that's our commitment to you the good lord willing obviously uh, um you know something terrible happens that won't happen but uh if all things go well we'll have mark back mm-hmm. on he agreed to it as well so Thank you so much for tuning in. Just a reminder to everyone that we are on Patreon. You can support the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Help us to create good content, to market the content, and to reach more and more people around the world. We have a good audience in Canada, a good audience in the United States, um, a relatively good audience in uh, certain parts of Europe, and then scattered throughout the world as well. But our goal, our mission is to equip people with the tools that they need to have effective and winsome conversations about abortion and not just conversations, but really just to do effective work in the movement, because yeah, like Cam, if we're going to be here, you know, if we're going to be in the movement um, it would suck to, to be in the movement for 40 years and look back and think, you know, what sort of change, what sort of, you know, did anyone's mind change? Did anything really happen at all? Um, but we want to, to, to be the most effective, to be the best, to keep pre-born children at the center of our conversations and our work and to work to the, towards the transformation of our culture. Cam, I love giving you one last thing to say. Please take it away, sir. <laughs> Rapid. <laughs> last thing, though,
1: uh, I will say a big shout out to the, the five or six people who were part of my Stuck book study um, that just finished up. We did a five-part book study. We had some incredible folks be a part of it. Um, walking through Justina Van Menon's book, Stuck, complete guide to um, answering tough questions about abortion. Uh, we're going to be doing another round of that in the new year, probably sometime in February. We'll kick that off. So stay tuned for that. Um, and and please do check out Lime 5. It was published almost 30 years ago now, um, but it is no less worthwhile than it was when it was first published. So please do that. Thank you for tuning in. It's an honor as always, a blessing as always to um, have you as a part of this show. We appreciate your engagement and your involvement. And and we look forward to tuning in the next episode um, because we've got some other exciting guests coming down the tube again too.